Listeners, if you love getting cash back like I do, then you've got to get the Get Upside app right now. Get cash back on your everyday purchases without changing anything about how you shop or live. You'll pay however you normally do with a credit card or debit card, and cash back will be deposited directly to your GetUpside account. There's no limit on how much you can earn. GetUpside even works with other coupons, discounts, and loyalty programs. First, you claim your offer, find local offers on everything from gasoline to restaurants and everything in between. Second, you spend, you shop as you would at your favorite spots around town. Third, check in or scan receipts, check in to log your purchase, and you'll be on your way. Finally, get rewards. Earn cash back and cash out whenever you want via PayPal, e-gift card, or check. It's just that simple. I love coffee, and I get mine for free just by earning cash back from GetUpside. Download the app and get started getting your cash back today. Click on the link in the description of this episode to get started. Welcome to the Gridiron Stud Show. It's Chad Wilson and Amol Calamino, and uh, we're going to do something a little different today. You know, there's not a whole lot going on in the world of sports. We just got past the Super Bowl. Obviously, we've got NBA, college basketball, NHL going on, baseball working their way with spring training. But what we're going to do today is we are going to take an in-depth look into my co-host, <laughs> Amol Calamino, um, and just find out um, what makes him tick and what's you know, interesting about this is Emil is, uh, I call him the ultimate fan. But when I say that, he's um, not the typical fan. I don't want to confuse that with the typical fan. This is someone who's a little more knowledgeable than your average fan on what's going on on whatever sport it is um, we choose to talk about. And we, you know, Emil tends to stray away from sports that we're not all that well versed in and obviously football is king so that's the main part of what we talk about here obviously it's called the gridiron stud show so uh we're going to use this bit of a little downtime in sports to really just dig in here and this is something you guys ought to know who you're talking to all right so uh well i'm honored that you want to ask me questions as opposed to talking about aaron Rodgers' retreat into wherever he retreated allegedly you know we may even indeed touch (laughs) <laughs> on Aaron Rodgers at some point through here. This is going to be wide scoping. We can go anywhere. We'll see where it takes us. Um, you know, Amo, we could start off with your favorite thing to talk about in the world of sports, and that is the Dallas Cowboys, I think, as, at the present time. Or is that the USC Trojans? Yeah, whatever. I like them all. I like them all. I'm, 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 it depends what day of the week you get me. But we can talk about the Cowboys. Give me the origin of your Cowboys fanship, um, first of all, because you're a, you're, you're a native of Born and raised in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and so still living here. You got the Pittsburgh Steelers, who did pretty well against the Cowboys. Sure. And the Philadelphia Eagles, who would be described as an arch rival of the Dallas Cowboys. Tell me how someone born and raised in Pennsylvania, then, given what I just said, ends up being a Cowboys fan. Well, for the listeners, I think it's important when you, whenever you ask somebody how they became a fan of a team, you know, you need context, right? Because sure. if we were talking to a bunch of 35-year-olds, no matter where we were right now, we'd probably find quite a bit of Patriot fans, right? Because the Patriots were good during a large chunk of their youth, right? Agreed. So I, so when you live in this part of the country, in, in northeastern Pennsylvania, essentially there's generally three local teams I would consider. You know, you've got, as you name, the Steelers, you've got the Eagles, and I consider the Giants local. We're two hours from New York, two hours from Philly. So 
we have quite a bit New York Giant fans. I, I should count the Jets, but let's be honest, the Jets don't have many fans sure. outside of Queens. So you got three local teams. So I'm a kid. For context for the listeners, I'm a little older than Chad. I'm 54. So that makes me seven years old in 1975. All my friends are either Steelers fans because the Steelers were in the middle of a big run at that point. They were just starting to become the dynasty, okay? You got Eagles fans who the Eagles at that point were really bad, generally speaking. Um, but the fathers passed that down to their sons, right? And then Giants too. They were bad. So here I am sitting there. I didn't want to, I don't know. I've always been somebody that likes to go a little bit about against the grain. Um so I'm like, you know, I'm a kid. I want to root for somebody else. Who's who's the quarterback of the, the Cowboys at the time? Roger Staubach, sure. Captain America, right? And if you were anybody old enough listening to this knows what I'm talking about. If 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 he had the ball at the end of a game, you felt your team was going to win. Right. I mean, that was just if there's if there was a minute 30 left and they gave Roger Staubach the ball, he was exciting. Remember, this is an era where the quarterbacks weren't quite running as much. You had him. And you had like a guy named Fran Tarkington that ran, but generally quarterbacks dropped back to pass, threw the ball 50 yards down the field. It was either a long completion or incompletion, and then they ran the ball. <laughs> yeah, something fans don't really understand about the difference between passing back then and passing now. There's so much controlled passing, passes at or near the line of scrimmage. And that's why, you know, completion percentages are, you know, around 65 to 70% as a sure. person. You could be 55% and be considered a pretty, you know, decent quarterback back in the day. Oh, sure. And, you know, back, you know, not to, I'm trying to stick with the question, but providing context, people don't realize back then the theory was the old Woody Hayes theory. Mm -hmm. Three things happen when you throw the ball and two of them are bad. So it was a risk reward thing. And most, most offenses, when they did throw the ball, tried to push it down the field. So, you know, you, you ran the ball to give yourself that opportunity. Well, Stallback was different. You know, he, he he threw for a pretty decent completion percentage in that era. He, he was a Heisman Trophy winner. He was graduate of the Naval Academy. And he, he was a tough guy. I mean, he ran the ball, got a lot of concussions. And the Cowboys were the up-and-coming team. You know, they weren't the Cowboys that everybody quite hates now. Um, they were the Cowboys. They had failed in a lot of big games. They finally got over the hump. By the time you became a fan, had like what have they done Super Bowl wise? They had won the one against Miami. Now, when that that was pre, you know, I had to watch that on highlights. I mean, I was three right. years old. I didn't, but by '74 is when I first recall remembering them. My father was taking me to high school games. I was six years old. They won the Hail Mary game against the Vikings. Okay, and I. To Drew Pearson. On video, I obviously. Yeah, that was 1975. So I remember, um, I remember that pass. I remember the play, and I was kind of hooked. You know, the Cowboys. They had the silver helmets, which showed up on TV. They had the star. They had the cheerleaders. You're a little kid at that point. I said, "I like cheerleaders." (laughs) Taking fans back a bit, um, and you know, I think a good amount of our audience are probably near our age, so they could kind of understand how football was distributed on our television sets back then. So, understanding that you are in Pennsylvania, and that's Philadelphia town, you don't get the Cowboys every week. So, I mean, what was on your TV? Did well that, and that's another part of it, and that's a great. You're a good interviewer. That's a, a big part of this. Here, you're going to get the Steelers, 
every every game because that's your local AFC team. You're going to get the Eagles every game because that's your local NFC team. Okay, then you're going to get a national game, right? Pretty much the same everywhere. You get the Dolphins, I'm sure, every week. Right. Uh, and I don't know who your NFC. Except team. in a lot of towns, you know, you don't have two teams. You know, in a lot of in a lot of states, you don't have two teams. So you're you're only going to be pigeonholed into one. Game. What was what was, the Cowboys were on all the time, hence the term America's team. They were always on TV. So I'm sitting there, you know, I, I didn't want to like the local teams. And pretty much you got, you know, especially in that era when the Cowboys were really good, they were always on TV. They, they were a huge draw. I mean, let's be honest. We're Americans. Who doesn't like Cowboys? You know, yeah. when, when you're kids, you grow up playing Cowboys. Well, a great deal of the country at this moment. But, yes, right. understandable. But dare and I Cowboys say Cowboys and Indians? Indians? was a big deal in the sense, yes. for sure. So, uh, understandable. And I can identify with that having grown up. My, you know, obviously my early years were in New York City. So, sure. we had the Jets and the Giants, and you were going to get the Jets and the Giants. Right. Um, so, it didn't make for great viewing. I grew up a Los Angeles Rams fan. So, um, it was very difficult for me to get a Rams game on television. And I was glued for, I was glued to the TV. I watched a lot of Giants and Jets games to get Rams scores. So consequently, I knew a lot of Jets and Giants football. And, and you know, you know this, anyone over, I'd say, 45 years old listening to this understands completely what we're talking about. You, you know, to a younger generation, you get whatever you want on TV anymore. I mean, there's almost nothing you can't see Yes, if you want to see it. Then it wasn't as easy. So if you were and a Rams, remember how hard it was to get the score of a game, a oh, game you're watching. Oh, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't up on the screen. You, you were waiting. No. Come on, tell me the score. I just turned this on. What's the score? You're dead. You're really trying to figure it out. So unless you got a shot of the scoreboard, or you might have some announcers who were aware at the time that there may be viewers coming in. And not, I, I, to be honest, the majority of them were. You'd have a handful who were savvy enough to say there may be viewers that are coming into the middle of this game, and they'll tell you what the score is. Browns are leading the Steelers here 10-7 to 7 in the third. You know what I mean? I don't remember the year where they started putting the score up on the corner of the screen full time. No, I don't either, but it, was, it wasn't in our youth. And I'm telling you, somebody who's 25 listening to this right now is thinking, are, are these guys like out in the plains in like 1880 or something? Um, this is you and I as kids listening to this um, and listening to people talking about games being on the radio. So imagine what those, yeah. were, you know, listening to games on the radio had to go through. I mean, you, you were basically working off of um, whatever skill level that radio guy had of painting your picture. You really had to have an imagination. And, you know, you've got to remember, you can pretty much figure out people generally, their age. You could figure out who they might be rooting for if you know what happened in that era. So, for instance, if I knew you grew up in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. right, you were probably a Rams fan, right, or a Raider fan, depending on the era, maybe, or... I have to know your age for so for it up here. Sure. If I'm a little younger than I am um, when the Raiders came to town, you know, perhaps I was a Raiders fan. Um, right. I'm sure, all of Los Angeles were Ram fans, though. There may have been, now I've got to think who else might have caught their eye, maybe in the 80s. Maybe there were 49er fans. I don't know. But the 49ers have a pretty big following. There are a lot of Cowboy city. fans in Los Angeles back Oh, then. tons of them. Well, remember, the Cowboys started practicing out in Los Angeles. 
in the 70s under Tom Landry. It was so hot in Dallas in August and July that he started that taking the team out to Thousand Oaks, California. So a lot of people would consider that soft, Billy. They would. But that was the, I mean, that was also, remember, Tex Schramm, not Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones is a great marketer and God bless him. But Tex Schramm was the visionary and understood how to market the game of football. And a lot of the things that happened in the NFL, he should get a lot more credit from the younger generation, but it's not explained to them. He understood building a brand. He brought the Cowboys out to California. Hence, there's a ton of Cowboy fans, especially in Southern California. He understood the helmets. He worked on that silver. The Cowboys came into the league with white helmets, blue stars. They kept them for four years. Mm -hmm. They were an expansion team. They stunk. He worked on that helmet and worked on it because he said it had it. He knew TV was going to dominate the NFL. And he it's said, always good to hear about visionaries like that. And, yeah. and as a kid, the helmet was important for you as a kid. It was shiny. Um, it captured your attention. You identified a lot of the team by the helmet. You know? Sure. So, you yeah. remember when we were kids, right? We'd collect those little plastic ones you'd get in the bubble gum machine. Yeah, and you'd have, if, if you were lucky, if your mom bought you the rack, you'd have all 30, whatever there was, 28 teams. Yeah, you or you would plastic. have something silly going on, like you have eight oiler helmets, um, because yes. that's just what kept popping out of there. So I understand that. Do you remember, Abel, the first football game you watched on television? And the reason I ask that question is, I know this wasn't the first football game I watched on TV, but the first football game I vividly remember watching was the Rams beating the Cowboys in, in, 19, in the 1979 playoffs. But I know I've been watching football since 1977 when I first came back in the country from Trinidad. It's just that's the first game I really remember watching. And my dad being well, so here's what's Cowboys here's what's sick. That. that was Roger Staubach's last game, if I'm remembering correctly. Correct. Um, and I remember I want to say the final was 24-17, and I'm not Googling anything here. <laughs> um no, not the final score, but um somewhere close to that but it is it, it, it was in that vicinity it was Stavak's last game he got concussed i believe in the game it was a close game 21 yeah, he, 19 maybe might have been the final he would so retire after, needed a late touchdown to, yeah to yeah he would retire after that game uh in a press conference but you know back to me becoming a cowboy fan up here kids my age if you weren't the local team right you were either the cowboys the raiders they were really good then the Dolphins, the, those were the teams in the 70s that if you were not a local guy, mm-hmm. generally that you ended up like I had a lot of friends that were, if they weren't Cowboys, they were Raider, Dolphins, Viking fans, right? Ram fans, because those teams were good. And that's generally how people pick their teams. Either you're going to be the local team or you're going to pick a national team that is is a good team, right? You're not, I mean, let's be honest, when you're six years old, you're not looking to pick the crappiest team usually. Sure. Um, I mean, no one does that to themselves unless unless their dad gives them a team. Well, true, true. Yeah. But you rooted for a crappy team if it was the local team. The that's local how, team, correct. Yeah, that's how they ended up like that. So, you know, the Cowboys had a good period of disappointment. They did a lot of winning, but they kept going to that Super Bowl and losing. Um, how did you handle that part? Because, you know, and the reason I asked that is, you know, I felt that. 19, I tell people this story. 
The Rams lost the Super Bowl. It, the game, the actual game was in January of 1980, but it was for the 79 season. Sure. And I cried. You know, I'm a seven-year-old kid. Really, uh, you know, the Rams had made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, I was fully aware of the fact that they'd never been to one at that point. So I was so happy about it. Um, and the improbable wins. First of all, there was my dad telling me they are not going to beat the Cowboys and they ended up beating the Cowboys. And then beating the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with three field goals, winning nine nothing. So it just yep. felt magical. And then they had an actual lead and looked like they were, you know, in control in the Super Bowl game. And then they lose. And then I go to school the next day. The kid wears a Pittsburgh Steelers beanie. And that was traumatic. No, we got in a fight. Yeah, that's yeah, I mean, the kid fought. Yeah. It was like, you know, what are you wearing that for? Are you trying to rub this in my face, et cetera, et cetera? I'm at, I'm at the Christian school. I'm at the Seventh-day Adventist school getting in a fist fight over um, this kid wearing a beanie. So how did you handle that disappointment? Well, again, let me give you context. I only had to handle one loss, and I'll explain to you. 1970, I'm two years old. I, that's only video for me. They lose to the Colts in the famous Chuck Howley or Bob Lilly, I think it was Lilly, taking his helmet and throwing it. The Colts kicked right. a field goal to win the game. The next year, I didn't get to see that Super Bowl. I'm three years old. They beat the right. Dolphins. 75, which was the Hail Mary year that they beat the Vikings, mm. they played the Steelers. They were a wild card that year. Mm. They had a good season. They were like, back then, there was only 14 games. They were 10-4 and four in the regular season. But that was the, what they called the Dirty Dozen team. The Cowboys had 12 rookies make their team and probably end up Playing the Steelers in the Super Bowl, uh, January of 1976, bicentennial year. Cowboys famously put the red stripe on the back of their helmet, if you ever see the highlights from that year. okay. Stallbacks pitching balls in the end zone. They lose the game 21-17. But i am got to remember now, I'm six years old. I just okay. turned six in August. For me, it was like, oh, well, we lost. It wasn't traumatic yet. I was just becoming a fan. What was traumatic was... Uh, then I remember beating Denver in a Super Bowl and going back to play Pittsburgh the following year, trying to get back-to-back -back ones. The Jackie Smith dropped the ball in the end zone one, 35-31. Right. That was traumatic. Didn't handle it well, okay? <laughs> Didn't handle well. All my friends were Steeler fans. Didn't handle it well. Didn't go well for me, okay? So there was 78, was there not? That was a 78 season, and, and the Super Bowl was January 79. So I'm 10 years old, just old enough where kids are talking trash to each other. <laughs> and, you know, remember, put yourself back when you're that age, right? It's not just that a team lost a game. I mean, this is your identity at that age. Sure. I mean, you're a loser. Yeah, you all wrapped into it. You've got the shirts. You've got, you know, your favorite player, I guess for you, would have been Starbucks jersey. Yeah. All the caps, everything. And so, yeah, when they lose, you lose. Um, they're losers, you're losers, and that's just the way that it goes. So, you that's, know, that's understandable. Um, you went through a little bit of a dark period there. And um, and then, then you had the Jimmy Johnson years. Tell me your thoughts, honestly, as as well as you can remember this, tell me your thoughts when Jimmy Johnson was hired. Oh, I loved. Well, first of all, you know I'm a you know I'm a UFC fan. We know that from people listening to the show. But I'm a closet. Like Miami's like my second team, so I followed it. And how long? How far back did that date? Did that predate the winning? Was that when they started winning? You know what? I kind of started to like keep an eye on Miami when they had Jim Kelly, and I remember everybody up here is Penn State fans. Right. And Kelly engineered an upset. And it, it, I remember it being rainy for some reason. I want to say it was like 79 or 80. He engineered an upset at Penn State. 
And, you know, Miami kind of like, you know, when you're up in the north, everything's dark in the fall and winter. Miami had these flashy orange and white uniforms. And, I, I you know, you're a kid. So I thought, that's pretty cool. And I wasn't the biggest Penn State fan. So I was like. All right. Well, that's cool. So this predates the actual dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to follow, you know, I mean, like, listen, am I going to sit here and tell you that? that I was losing sleep when Miami lost. No, but when they were on TV, I would find myself, yeah, I like this team. I'm pulling for Miami. So I, Jimmy Johnson was somebody I followed a little bit because I also liked Barry Switzer when he was at Oklahoma. And I remember Johnson coaching at Oklahoma State. So I knew a little bit about him. Now this is my teen years. You know, I'm 16, enough to understand what's going on. And this guy goes to Miami. And I'm thinking, you know, he's a pretty good coach because Oklahoma was, you know, Oklahoma was tough back then. Sure. And he, he gave them, you know, he, he was a pain in Barry's, in Barry's side. So when he went to Miami, I, I liked following him. I thought his teams were fun to watch. I liked the stuff where they were kind of like brash. So he we went to Dallas. I'm thinking, I mean, I love Coach Landry, but I knew it was over. I mean, Dallas was still doing that flex defense in like 1989. And it was like, Tom, don't work doesn't work anymore <laughs> so so you're excited about jimmy coming they go yeah. one in 15 did that change anything in your mind well, pardon me they go one in 15 that first year did that change anything in your mind well, no because if you were a cowboy fan now you know this is 1989 right so i'm 21 i mean my senior year in college i'm old enough to understand that we were bad i mean anybody who's too young dallas is cut for when you say bear johnson got there and probably orchestrated what still is the greatest trade in NFL history because Dallas had nothing. Jimmy even tells the story. Mm-hmm. He looked around. The only thing they had was Herschel Walker. Right. I mean, and to put, again, giving people, Herschel Walker ran for, I think, 1,500 yards in 1988, Landry's last season. Dallas was 3-13. and 13, So they were bad in Landry's last season, okay? Right. This guy goes for 1,500 yards. Jimmy trades him to Minnesota for basically everything except their bubble dome that they played right. in. I mean, he got everything. So I knew he was – I felt this guy's going in the right direction if he makes the right picks, but I knew the team was bad. So, I mean, how, I mean, I like Aikman coming out of UCLA. As a USC fan, I knew he was a really good player. Right. So I felt like, hey, they got some guys here. Let's give the guy a sh-. You know, you said I'm a pretty reasonable fan. I have my moments where I'm not, but I was like, let's give this guy a shot. I mean, they're one in fifteen, but the, let's see what he does with the picks. Mm-hmm. So, all right, um, you had to show some patience, which is you know not normal for this current day and age of fans. So, Jimmy comes to town in eighty nine, but it wasn't. Listen, let's be honest; it wasn't as bad as you think it was. And here, here's what was amazing with Johnson's turnarounds. We're dialing back clocker. So, for the fans out there, Dallas was. 3 and 13 in 1988. Tom Landry's dismissed. Jerry Jones buys the team. Jimmy comes in. They go 1 and 15 in 1989. Now, so you got four wins in two years. In 1990, Dallas is sitting at 7 and 7. And Aikman gets hurt after the 14th game. And in comes Babe Laufenberg, who who still does Dallas games now. And uh, the Babe proceeds, I, I, I forget who beat them in week 15, but they still had a shot to sneak into the playoffs in week 16, and they lost to the Atlanta Falcons, and I still know the score. And this one you can look up, 26-6. So they finished 7-9, and nine, right. but from where they were, you were seeing the progress. You're like, hey, this team was awful for two years, 
And they were, you know, an injury to their quarterback away from maybe even being a playoff team with in his second year. Well, I understand this. Um, the standard for Cowboys is Super Bowl. So yes, you're having lean years. So 88, you weren't you you were terrible. 89, you're the worst ever in franchise history. 90, you didn't make the playoffs. Um, 91, you weren't in the Super Bowl. You can refresh my memory on what happened that 91 season. Well, 91, if you remember, 91 was when they turned the corner. The, Re uh, the, the team now known as the Commanders, who were the Redskins, were a juggernaut in 91. The Cowboys come into that. Winners that year, by the way. Yes, the Cowboys were 6-5, and five, and I still remember with a, a friend who since, a, a really good friend of mine who since passed, was a diehard Redskins fan. We went to a sports bar. It was week 12. Redskins were 11-0 in RFK. Cowboys went in there six and five and beat them 24-21. But Aikman got hurt in the game. In comes Steve Berline to finish it up. Dallas wins the game. Aikman played most of the game and engineered the win. Berline then proceeds to have the Cowboys rip off four wins in a row. And they, they go to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And Philadelphia had that. That was the team that earlier that season had sacked Aikman 11 times in Dallas. Mm -hmm. Dallas beat them in Philly. And, if, and one of the key plays was a big punt return. It was a, a guy from Miami, I want to say. Kevin Williams. Kevin Williams. Punt return. No, not in 91. That would not no, no, then it was somebody. But Dallas had a, 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 a receiver that was a great punt return. I remember him going straight up the gut against Philly. I think they won like a 24-10, 23-10 type game. Would they it have been Kelvin Martin or something? I like that. Might have been Kelvin Martin from Boston College. You, you, yeah. Maybe it's him. Anyway, they go 11-5. and five. They get to the playoffs. Burline quarterbacks the first game. Aikman's not ready yet. They go to Soldier Field and beat the Bears. Right. Then they, go, then they have the, the Lions of all teams, and the Lions just put it on Dallas. Aikman, they didn't start Aikman in the game. Jimmy felt that Burline had the hot hand. Dallas was down big, and they ended up losing by like 30 points. And that, but, but you could see I, the progress. I distinctly remember a clip from that game with Barry Sanders spinning a Dallas Cowboy uh, linebacker around like three or four times, just put him in a complete spin. I think that yes. guy, whoever it is, is still looking for Barry Sanders. Oh, he might, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was, but, but, you know, that was, that you was, know, that is a, Amol, could you think if Aikman would have started that game and the outcome more than likely would have been the same? What do you think the story would have been the next year going in? It is kind of a blessing that Berline was the guy that started that game, and that's what happened. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to say at this point. You're right. It, it would have it would have probably changed. Because think of what Berline did closing out the season, getting a playoff win. Then you don't start him because you want to start your franchise quarterback in the Lions game, and then it's a blowout. That's a problem the next year. I would. Yeah, think. and I think and to a degree, and I don't obviously, I don't think a guy like Jimmy thought he was going to get beat by 30 points but i think he was smart enough to understand that where most fans didn't that hey this team's good but not good enough yet to win a super bowl if i do that and it doesn't work out it puts a lot of pressure on my franchise guy so i'm gonna roll with the hot hand and if yeah. we win we win your most memorable cowboy game unfortunately it was a loss talk to me which one was that it was the san francisco uh the catch oh i mean and you know, it, it, it's funny. It's it's it, you know how you know you're on the right track is that Coach Landry always said in books and stuff, interviews afterward, that was the hardest loss of his career because he felt he had the better team. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, let's be honest, they probably would have beat the Bengals in the Super Bowl just like sure. the 49ers did. Sure. 
And I, I think, and, and, you know, for people who don't remember that game, most for most people who aren't a 49er or a Cowboy fan, the game ends with the catch. Mm-hmm. But that's not where the game ends. Where the game ends is on the next possession, the Cowboys down one with a really good field goal kicker and 40-some seconds left. Uh, Danny White hits Preston Pearson in, in stride. I want to say Preston and not Drew. I think it was Preston. Mm-hmm. And he's off to the races. And I, I think it was either Eric Wright or Ronnie Lott got him down from behind by the jersey at, at or around midfield. Mm-hmm. If they don't do this, he either takes it, he either hits the goal post or gets tackled so far down there. It's a chip shot. Right. The ensuing play, White turns the ball over. I want to say it was a sack fumble. I want to say sack fumble, but they were at midfield. And Dallas had a back then, Dallas had a 50-yard field goal kicker, which back in the day, if you if you if you had a guy who could consistently make him from 50, 51 yard, good, good kicker. And so they weren't that perhaps was the name. Yes. That was a Septian, and 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 they were so that game. Well, that's me. Look, as um, we're all in that era forced to know all the Dallas Cowboy guys because, as Amos said, you know, previously the Cowboys were always on television. So I was not a Cowboys fan growing up, far from it. But you know, all the players, even the obscure ones, the backup fullbacks, the tight ends, the um, the the six defensive linemen that came in you just happen to know but you know what i'm talking about you you have to if i mean if you watch this game you remember the sequence like a lot of for a lot of people when they show it on nfl films they show dwight clark and it's it you know you get the feeling oh the game was over like if you weren't watching oh so they won they won 28 27 and there was a lot of game that happened in those 40 some seconds right after that where that whole outcome that catch could have been obscure let's put it this way a few plays Differently. It is interesting, Amol, how a number of dynasties came to be. Um, and it's usually by some small margin. We can take the Patriots if it's not the tuck, right? Right. Rule that could have easily gone in a different direction. They narrowly won that first Super Bowl, you know, with Tom Brady. Um, so there is, you know, there is that the University of Miami's um dynasty got kicked off with the knockdown of a you know a, a two-point try in a game that ended in a tie no less right uh, you know you have stuff like that i think about nick saban's era starting in in alabama and i still say to this day if colt mccoy didn't get hurt in that game against texas i think texas beat alabama in that game but he did indeed get hurt and alabama kind of rolled from there so it's funny how you know these these dynasties start but they were just that close to never even happening, or at least not happening on that particular day. And there's several other examples that can be brought up there. It's just the team getting over the hump by winning a game by that small margin and then having the confidence. Right, and a lot of things, like, they're all great points. We know what the 49ers did from that point forward, and look at how they they stepped into their, you know, their era, their dynasty um, on on the catch. Yeah. Point win. Well, they became relevant. I mean, the 49ers had been obscure for a decade. You know, people don't realize. I mean, they were they were a good team in the 60s and early 70s, but they had been 10 years where OJ coming for his last year. Right. That was pretty exactly. much, you know. So, yeah, I mean, they're all great examples you, you give, like Texas, Alabama. Who knows? I mean, you're probably – I mean, Texas was moving the ball. Colt McCoy gets hurt. Everything's different. Yeah, if you watch the game and watch the flow of the game – you can feel that this was kind of Texas's thing here. 
and um, and Alabama was going to have a problem all night long. Back then, Alabama was really kind of one dimensional. They 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 would have game managers at quarterback. They would be able to run the ball pretty well, and then they'll play good defense. Well, they weren't really running the ball like they normally would, and Texas was kind of flowing up and down the field, and then Colt got hit in the back, and then you know the. the By the way, not to get off the subject, I think that game kind of was more important in that it ended Texas for a long time, put them out in the wilderness. I think Alabama eventually would have became Alabama because I think Saban is that good of a coach. Mm. But I think Texas, when they lost that game, it, I don't know what happened, but everything went sideways from that point forward. Yeah, it kind of buried them. You, you know, you felt like after the whole Vince Young thing, like Texas was going to ascend, and they, you know, kind of, they were moving in that direction. Yeah. Obviously with Colt. Uh, getting in there and getting all the way to a championship game, but that ended up not happening. So since we're on the topic of college football, we understand now how you became a Cowboys fan. Tell us how how USC. Well, I always tell people it's real simple, right? I I like every LA team in major sports, except a particular reason. I'll tell you why, except for the Cowboys, and they belong out there. They, they're an LA team. They should be in LA. But here's the thing: I would watch games here, and as you know. You grew up in New York. In the Northeast, come mid-November, it starts to get dry, gray and dreary, and you know winter's coming. You, you know you're gonna you're not gonna see the sun very much. Right. So I've always been someone. I think I shouldn't say most people. I have a couple family members who like cold weather, but most most people are drawn to light. Right. You feel better. I see the sun coming through your shades. There, it's nice. It's a sunny day here. I can't I can't lie about that. Yeah, you smile. I didn't, right? I, you know, I didn't want to flaunt that in your face. No, 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 no. So. I'd be watching these games as a little kid and, you know, you'd see the sunshine and the, uh, and the palm trees. And, and the funny thing was, again, this, uh, this requires context in the early seventies, college football here, you got Penn state, Michigan, Ohio state, you had big 10 teams in Notre Dame. They're on all the time, but at three 30 mm. on ABC, you would generally get the late game from the Coliseum with Mr. Keith Jackson. <laughs> and he would come in. And just having his voice is going to attract you to maybe. Oh, yeah. And you would have Traveler, you know, and you'd have the Sunshine Traveler. The USC had the fancy, you know, the, the crimson and gold uniforms. Right. I mean, they pop on television. So, you know, you're, you're, again, you're six years old. USC was really good back then. I mean, that was, you know, John McKay was the coach and then eventually Robinson. And I, you know, I just became, I got hooked in 74, same year with the, cow, with, uh, I was telling you the next year with the Cowboys and the catch 74 was the Anthony Davis game. They would, the even years, they play Notre Dame at home, right? right. So it's the, it's the Saturday after Thanksgiving. I'm six years old. I remember my dad having the game on and it's 24, six Notre Dame at the half. And, you know, I'm sitting with him asking a ton of questions, just, just like I am now, only 450, you know, a lot of questions. Right. And my father's like trying to explain the game to me. And USC's losing 24 6 at the half. And this guy, Anthony Davis, great running back, takes the second half kickoff back. USC scores, I don't know, 40 some unanswered points, wins the game 52 24. You know, the announcers are going crazy and you have all the pageantry. And I don't know, I'm just hooked. You know what I mean? It's just like one of those things that clicks in your head. Understandable. So going back to my experience, I took to college football a little bit later, which is crazy because that ended up, you know, for a majority of my teen years being the, the, the bigger of the two sports for me. But you imagine being in New York, you're getting Colgate, you're getting right. Army, you're getting those games. I really don't remember 
the afternoon slot games more than likely. My Saturdays were different for me as a kid. I grew up mm-hmm. seven Adventist. So, you know, I'd be in church um, and church all day. You're not really supposed to be watching television. So um, I didn't get a ton of Saturday watching it early on in, in my life. But but yeah, that would be the deal. But for me, somehow I ended up a UCLA fan. I, you know, it's a color thing for me, though. Um, you know, and, and it's. You you like you like the powder blues and the and the gold. I like the blue and the gold because the first team I ever rooted for, the first sport team I ever rooted for was Brazil. And so you, I was I grew up my early years in Trinidad. Uh, right. Went out there when I was two. Lived there till I was five. And soccer is the major sport there. And you know Brazil was it in the seventies. So Pele, first person sure for and What's the Brazilian colors? Gold and blue. Yep. So I come here, the professional, the NFL team I root for, Los Angeles Rams. Gold and blue, uh, right. The first college football team I really take to, UCLA. Now, Rams. wait, let me ask you, so even though, so you liked UCLA before you moved to Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. I mean, I moved to Los Angeles when I was 16. Yeah. Yeah, I've been a full-on UCLA fan uh, maybe from age Maybe 1980, 81. See, I know you all these years, and I always just assumed you kind of got hooked on UCLA. No, it ended for me when I went out there. Oh. I was a big UCLA fan. Then I started playing high school football. I started getting recruited in high school, albeit not heavily, but, you know, in a position where I could think that a UCLA might recruit me, and they did. By the way, no, the only Pac-10 at the time team that recruited me was Cal at the time. So no USC, no UCLA, Arizona was really good. And none of the upper echelon. Packers, right. Okay. You know, recruited. So you were already a Rams fan too. I was a Rams fan when I went out there. Um, but no, actually I, I was winding down off the Ram fan thing. And, and the, you know, I tell everyone the day of death of my Ram fandom, I know the actual date, October 31st, 1987. They yes. When Eric Dickerson got traded. Like, because you don't want to pay this guy, the best thing that's happened to this franchise, um, at least in my lifetime watching, was this guy coming there and you, uh, the female owner, Georgia Frontier, let him go. So I was done. So I would still pay attention, but I wasn't, you know, full yeah. blown there. But anyway, UCLA recruited my cousin, who's the same age as me, um, also lived in the Los Angeles area. And my cousin ends up committing and going to UCLA. And I don't go to UCLA. I go to Long Beach State. Obviously not a rival, but at that point I was kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right, UCLA this. and you know, pay attention now, but no. Yeah, see, so, see, so, so you see for me, a lot of it was like I just didn't want to I didn't want to be in with the pack and like the local team. So that's kind of I didn't even root for Notre Dame because I mean they were it growing up for you as a kid. Well, there's a lot of Notre Dame fans everywhere, and there's a quite a thing, especially yeah. in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, New York City, right? That that corridor. There's yes, a, the Catholic yeah. corridor. Yes, there's a lot of new Notre Dame fans. So no, I just never. And Penn State, it's not even you kidding me all the time. It's not that I dislike Penn State. I'm just, I you know, and I say this with all due respect for any of you that are listening locally. You're all good people, but Penn State fans are goofy. <laughs> Yeah, and you seem to have fun when we're making our picks during the fall uh, when you get to go against Penn State. I, I feel you twisting the knife just a little bit more when you're dealing with them. All right, so so all I really know about your playing background 
is baseball. Was there another sport that you played? Tell me a little bit about your athletic career. Okay. Uh, I, I actually, as a kid, playing football, broke my femur when I was 12 years old, playing tackle football, pickup football. So that ended my... Really where the worst injuries happen. It's the worst. It's, it, and by the way, if, for anybody out there, if you ask somebody how hard it is to break a femur, mm. their the car, car accidents... Yeah, their car accidents. Falling off of buildings. Yes, I ended up in traction five weeks. I ended up with a cast on three months. Uh, I couldn't run. You know, your mom and dad must have been thrilled. Oh, they were. They yeah. They, my mother's a, a retired nurse now, but she she was an RN. So I ended up basically a year to rehab that injury. I, I was a, a you know okay. I was a very good baseball player. Mm. Good At that player. time. Oh, up and yeah. I mean, I had a great arm. I mean, I, my my buddy used to call me a gold arm. I I I could throw hard. You know, I mean, I played up through you know up up until high school. You know, I mean, I I had seventeen strikeout games when I was sixteen years old. You know what I mean? Wow. So I I I could throw hard, and I liked baseball. My father was an avid golfer. I mean, when I say he had me he had me swinging golf clubs like Tiger Woods, only didn't work out as well for me as Tiger. Okay, right. so. So I played golf in high school and I was, you know, all scholastic, all league, whatever you call it down there, two years in a row, my junior and senior year. I played basketball, stopped after my sophomore year because I had the vertical. I mean, I made varsity at that point and I wasn't I wasn't going to play. I had the vertical jump, but maybe I could get over a pack of cigarettes if you stood it up. So, you know, you got to know where your limitations are. Okay, you know, five, eleven and a half Italian guys. Mm aren't doing much on basketball courts. Okay. I mean, in Pennsylvania prep sports, you might have, uh, you know, been able to maneuver. It's, you know, trying to get into the Big Ten. Somewhere. No, I learned I learned quickly when we used to, I uh, played on an eighth grade team, you know, one of those uh, where, where we'd go down to the Scranton Boys Club. And uh, we, they had us in a league down there. And uh, I learned quickly my limitations on a basketball court. <laughs> <laughs> you were forced to face reality. Okay. Yes. So I, I really ask you that question because unlike many fans, and you know, we tend to craft our world now around Twitter folks. Sure. But unless it's really your favorite team, uh, whether it's the Cowboys or USC, and not even that much compared in comparison to others, you don't go really hard in on the play, so to speak, of the players, on what you think a player should do. Uh, I see I see folks on Twitter trying to get very specific about what they think certain players should do, um, what they think a quarterback should be doing, what they think a receiver should be doing. And in my mind, it's and it's not for me to be a snob because, hell, I only had a cup of coffee in the NFL. I did play major college football. Obviously. Right. Play enough to say you are not anywhere at all in a position to make these observations, at least not publicly. And so it's something I noticed you don't often do, if at all. I'm wondering if that has anything to do with your athletic background. Why do you think you're that way? Uh, well, might be a little bit, maybe up till I was 25. I'm trying to think of, you know, we all we all mature. But I know as I got older, what you realize, having played some sports, everything looks easy on TV, right? Sure. I mean, when you're sitting there Especially watching. when they're great athletes doing it. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I always kid with you. You know, you're sitting at a bar in the summertime, and a guy takes 97 on the black, and the guy's, how can you swing at that? Because well, he wasn't looking for 97. He was looking for a slider or something. Of course. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in a sport like baseball, especially when it comes to pitching and hitting, 
you know, with your playing background, you can kind of understand. But nothing makes, I mean, TV makes everything look, I use baseball because baseball is the one sport that on TV, you get no perception. If you're, when that camera gets behind the pitcher, that ball, you could track it all the way in. It looks like, how couldn't he swing at that? And then if I said, if I turn you around and put you behind home plate, you will hear that ball. You're a guy who's been to a lot of baseball games and you probably had some really good seats. Um, I've been to a couple where I've had really good seats. Couple, you know, a few years ago, sure. my birthday, Carmen, uh, you know, was able to secure some really good seats to a Yankee game. Um, and I've obviously coached baseball when my kids were playing it. But to be at a major league baseball game and just watching the warmups, just watching the pitcher warm up, that is where you realize there's such a wide spectrum be- between what you're seeing on television and what is actually real there. And I'm, and I also say this too because you know while my kids were playing, I got back into sure. playing baseball, you know, up to the early part of high school. So I started getting really good and teaching them. Started getting really good at hitting the ball, and so much so that we went to Coney Island. I remember this. <laughs> and uh, you know, I said, you know, I've been hitting, I've been hitting nineties in some of these places. They've got a hundred mile per hour. Um, you know, hitting cage here. So let me let me see if I can get some aluminum on the ball here. And the first pitch out of the thing came inside, caught my hand on my finger where you know you're wrapped around the bat, so it smashes my pinky finger right up against the bat, and I'm you know I'm done. I'm you probably by the way you probably had a fracture if you got an X-ray. Most likely because it turned yeah. all kind of crazy colors. Yeah, and I'm like. I don't want to see where the next one's going to come. After all, this is Coney Island. I'm probably not heavily regulated. I don't know when's the last no. time at these damn things. And I am on a vacation. I don't want to spend it with a broken jaw. It's bad enough. I'm spending it with nine fingers. But the, the speed that that ball came in, and then you watch those guys in at, at a major league baseball stadium throw that ball and then realize that on top of that pitch that you're seeing, they're going to have one that's 15, maybe even 20 miles slower than that. You don't have a whole lot of time. I'll, t- I'll tell you when it first dawned on I me. Mean, I had been going to games since I was young. You know, Little League, they take you on bus trips with your dad, all that stuff. But, and I remember the years, 1984, I think I was a sophomore in high school. So, as Chad likes to kid me about my math, um, I had won the Pennsylvania State Championship in business math. Mm. So, so, here we go. So there was such a thing. There was such a thing. So, so I it, FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America. So one of the teachers takes me down to Atlanta, Georgia for the Nationals, right? You take a test, maybe you win the National Championship. But you get to go for four or five days. He brings his, at the time, his kids were young. So they put me in the family truckster with the fam, with his family off to Atlanta. I go, the one day they have an event for people at, you know, for the kids at this. They take us to a Braves game, old Fulton County Stadium. Dale Murphy's still playing center field for the Braves. Pete Rose is at the end of his career. He's playing first base for the Expos. They're playing the Expos. Good, so, great, but forgotten he played for them. But yeah. You'll remember this. There was a guy who pitched for the Braves back then by the name of Pasquale Perez. Definitely remember him. Dominican. Now, what is Jerry again, for people who are younger, 95 was odd. You know, th- there was only a couple of guys on every team that threw 95 consistently back then. It wasn't like today. Where, where, you know, guys are playing toss in the outfield at 95. You had a couple guys on every team that could light a radar gun up, and Pascual Perez was one of them. 
So he was warming up down the line. I think the bullpens in that stadium, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least where the pitchers would warm up for him, he was down the line where I could see the ball and, and hear it. And I just remembered being close enough to see, and I'm like, holy, holy hell. <laughs> i the hell out of this man. And, you know, that thing's coming in. So you ask, circling back, why don't I go off on players? Because I just, you know, I try to remember how hard these games are. They all get, my father used to say to me, Emil. They all get paid. <laughs> when I get mad, they all get paid. <laughs> Someone's winning and losing, and it's not going to be consistent, you know? Right. Um, and that's just the way that it is. But and I think fans actually do themselves a disservice if they listen to themselves, to your point. You, know, you, you have to know your lane in life. I, I'll debate you a little bit on coaching strategy because I think there's some things that a fan can, you know, that are math-oriented. Like, in other words, like, when should you use your timeouts? Right. Well, you don't have to be... You don't have to be Bill Belichick to have a disagreement on, listen, here's the way the math is going to work. I think you should use your time out here. Right. Or I think you should punt because risk-reward of fourth and two from your own 28 isn't worth it. I'll debate you on that. But for me to tell you that a guy is playing robber coverage the wrong way, I'm doing myself a disservice. I don't know enough about it. I mean, I just don't. No, that is uh, that is very true on both, on both measures. I mean, uh, you've got... They're not a ton of rocket scientists in the game of football. So, you know, you might get, and you know, I might cause some trouble with this, you'll get some meatheads that'll rise into the coaching ranks. Sure. And sometimes it could be because they're, you know, they just really know how to motivate the troops. But you run into a situation where there, there's a higher level of thinking that needs to be, you know, deployed. And they might routinely mess that up or mess it up with a good amount of consistency. Something with math, clock, time. So yes, the common fan can. Get I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of something since we're having just a random conversation here mm -hmm. of math stuff that drives me crazy with timeouts. Okay, you got two timeouts left in the two minute warning. You need three stoppages to get the ball back. Okay, guy will run the football. There'll be two ten left on the clock. Whatever, two twelve. The coach will let it go down to the two minute warning just because right. it's a nice even number. Now, as a math guy, I say, no, call your timeout. You can't get those 10 seconds back. Right. You can never That's get them back. Off. Right. You're going to get the two-minute warning anyway. Right. Call the timeout. And I'm, that stuff that will get me up in my living room because that's just pure math. It's like right. you can't get those 10 seconds back, pal. Yeah, why would you burn that off? Right. Because on the other side of that two minutes, you're not going to do that. So, right. Um, yeah, plop them in. I see that too, and I'm, you know, not a math whiz. All, although, but you I'm way better at math. Yeah, I'm way better at math in my, you know, adult years because of having to run a business than I was as a kid. But that stuff, some of that stuff, just really stands out to me. There's a lot of mismanagement, Emil, of the of of those two minute situations in the NFL, and it blows me away. But you know why I think there isn't to, to your point, and people don't want to understand this. These guys are really good at football. And what I mean by that is football plays, football technique. That's how they got there. Mm. But they're not necessarily math whizzes or logic whizzes. And some of this stuff is actually not football oriented as much as using math skills and logic and things that they don't pick up on. It's like, okay, well, I'll just let it run down to two minute warnings. I still have two timeouts and I get the clock stoppage and you, you have to sit them down and say, yeah, but those seconds in between 
mm. are never coming back. <laughs> well, let me dig into the math part of this um, that you talked about. You know, interesting FBLA, something, you know, obviously I remember from school was not a part of that, but I do remember the name of it. So tell me what a math competition looks like. I just, <laughs> like just how are we competing? It's are the SATs teams? with math. That's all it is. It's a standardized test. You know, so it's like anything. You start in a region in your district. Let's say you win. Then they have a state. What's the win? Whoever gets done the whoever gets done and answers the most questions on this standardized test correctly, and then the tiebreakers usually whoever hands it in first. So if it ends up that you and me, so it's time and intelligence. So you got to quickly be able to do this thing. Yes, yes, because you're gotcha. limited. Yeah. All right. It's, so that's it's nerdy stuff, buddy. It's nerdy stuff. No, I guess you understandable. Nerds run the world and they're starting to run the NFL too. Yes, much, they are. So, you know. so it's the same though. Now, when you go to uh, the national competition, same deal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you came in nationally? They don't tell you. They just tell you who was first, second, and third. And I wasn't first, second, or third there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. You protected your feelings back then. I, well, even that, I think they had they a trophy for being. Yeah. Good. They didn't give you a trophy, but they did protect your dignity a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> understandable so always been good at math as long as you can remember yeah you know what my i think it, math works for me because i like things that make sense and the, the beauty of math is if you're if you're people who are good at art right their brains abstract and they they like to live in the abstract hmm. for me i like things that are orderly and make sense and that's i, I think that's kind of why i always like sports and math right Math always makes sense. You can prove stuff backwards, forwards, this way, that way. It, it always comes back to the right answer. Sports generally makes sense. It's meritorious. Hmm. You, it's hard to pull strings in sports. You know what I mean? Like I think that's where why it brings people together. You, it doesn't matter if your if your dad knows the, knows the judge or or, or the, the dean of the school. It doesn't help you in sports necessarily because right. it's meritorious somebody's going to win somebody's going to lose usually if you're trying to win you're trying to play the best guys now it doesn't always work at some well I, yeah, I mean, there's some that would question that but yes. yes typically that is what you're trying to move to as best you can if you want to yes so i always like stuff that makes a lot of logical sense i tend to you know me a long time my brain tends to try to figure stuff out logically so we came together some uh we came together when i you know i I'm trying to think what year this would have been, but oh, this was back. I could tell you this is 2000, 2001, something in there, somewhere around that. I don't remember if it was pre or post 9 11, but um, you know, I was running a website where I would post, you know, my opinions on all of the college and NFL games every week. So I would complete with a final score. Now, Emil, I will tell you this. Now, I mean, this, this is me interviewing you, but. I think about how far back that dates. And you want to talk about nerdy. <laughs> I would say from the age of maybe 12, I, I had created a little sheet that I kept on a clipboard. And I had it sectioned off into 16 boxes. And it might not have even been 16. I don't remember how many teams there were back then. Whatever the amount of teams there were in the NFL divided by two. So I had a box for every game, and I would write in the box who was playing. I'd do this sometime during the week and put down the final score that I thought it was going to be for every one of those games. Right. It's back as a team. Now, no analysis. I knew nothing of point spreads. 
None of, none of that good stuff. But would have that. And I did the same thing. <laughs> maybe not, really? maybe not with the boxes, but I would have a sheet of paper where I'd be picking every game. It's wild as hell. So it, it only made sense that you and I would come together. But I would do this, and then I would get to Sunday night because, of course, uh, once again, you didn't get those scores all throughout the day. There was no checking the internet. There was no checking your phone. Um, there was no beeper yet. There, and, you know, there were there were score pagers uh, at one point, but they weren't even those then. So I would either have to catch the final scores after the wrap up of the late latest local game, or there was George Michael's Sports Machine, a nationally syndicated sports show at the end uh, on Sunday night, um, which was kind of like NFL prime time. Uh, and you get all the scores, and I would write in the actual final score next to what I predicted. This is something I did as a team. So, you know, I go on to start really playing football. You know, that practice is out of, you know, I'm out of that practice. I'm more into actual playing of the game. And then I'm out, I'm now I'm back out of the game and I'm working. And, you know, someone, there's someone in the office where I was working, uh, selling vacations on the phone, by the way, that comes by and hands you these parlay cards every week. So dating back to, hey man, you know what? Everyone's filling these things out. You're telling me I could turn this in of all those games when I could make some money? Why not? I've been Why not? I'll fill one in. <laughs> since I was 11, 12 years old. So predict them. I think I hit a couple of those parlay cards, which I found out are very difficult to do. And then I start uh, on America. You probably hit it. You probably hit an eight or 10 teamer. Yeah, oh, it was a nice little payout. Yeah. Considering the little stupid amount of money that I gave the guy, the money that I got back, yeah, was you know it it was quite handsome. You know? Yes, um, I did that. Then I started doing this on America Online, and one thing led to another. And then now I have this website called Sports Links that I post. And then you know people could obviously email me. And Amo was a consistent um, email, and I actually, and I'm not just saying this. I mean, people, and maybe some people listening actually re- remember if they re- if they know you from back then. But your picks were really good. <laughs> I mean, I would throw some analysis in there. So it was, I'm not the math guy. I'm the other side of the brain. And your bowl picks were were great. Oh, yes. For what, I mean, look, I was an avid bowl fan. And this was still in bowls. This was still when you sat around all day and watched New Year's Day bowls. Listen, and so I could then at that point combine that experience of having seen so many bowl games as a fan watching them. And then I played in them. So I now go behind the scenes. So there was a lot of experience going, you know, into that there. Are you a guy that can predict the future or may have a mean poker face? How about a love for horses or you just know who's going to win the game? Don't just be a profit, make a profit. And you can do that when you open an account at Bovada Sportsbook and Casino today. Whether it's getting down on the gridiron action, wiping out the dealer in a card game, making some change on the race of the ponies, or cashing in on celebrity events, Bovada Casino is the place for you to draw your line. Since 2011, Bovada has been a leader in the online casino industry, spearheaded by their top-of-the-line customer service, easy deposit, secure payouts, and great welcome bonuses. Head over to Bovada now to see what they're offering you to come in and scratch that itch you're having. Click on the link in the description and tell them the Gridiron Stud Show sent you. Yeah, so um, I have this website. I'm posting these plays on a weekly basis. Now, listen, Amal, I would get all kind of emails back then. An email. Was Some of them aren't very kind, are they? No, especially if you have a bad, you know, if you have a bad week. 
Um, you will definitely get some threats. You'll get cursed out. You'll get all kind of crap going on. Um, but you are a consistent email. It's just interesting for me to. Well, let me ask you. This was back when you, I think your model, because uh, again, we have to dial people back. Gambling, especially for the younger generation now, is basically you do it from your phone and everybody's into it and nobody cares and we advertise it. This was still back in the day where, I mean, I don't even think online poker was was there yet. Yeah, you might have it as part of what a sports book offered, but it was not a big thing. No, you were still, this was early, this was right before or right after 9-11. So people were still generally placing bets with guys with cigars and no necks. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I think the big difference were, for me was it never really was about the betting. It was about just being able to analyze a game and give a final. Well, score. your model, you weren't yet charging for picks. You were giving the picks out free and trying to sell the advertising, right? Um, I did try that part first. Um, yeah. I had the, um, I had the, I created like this email list off of America Online um, because after I, you know, had some success with the the guy passing out the parlay cards in the office, I decided to, you know, I just had this account with America Online. I was always fascinated with the computer, and then when they start, when we got to this point where we could connect computers and you could talk to people from all over, um, outside of, you know, my cousin and I doing battle with the skinhead group. Uh, which was absolute fun for us. I'd be rushing home to just really terrorize their lives. Um, going into some of these chat rooms in America Online for sports was good because you'd get information like, you know, like that quickly. So I happened to one day find one where people were, uh, where it was had something to do with betting on sports. And, you know, we're in the middle of the NFL season. So I just put in there three games that I thought would win based on what I thought the final scores would win and what I saw the point spread would be. Lo and behold, that first week, all three of those games won. So the email inbox was filled. You know, you come back, you cut on your, for folks that can remember, you cut your computer on in here, you've got mail. And then I see that number in there is crazy high. And I'm like, what's going on? What are your picks for this week? So my mind immediately starts turning and turning. I'm like, all right, after a couple of weeks of this, how could I turn this into a business? And I know um, that there are guys that sell picks and they're scam artists. The one night yeah. guys, the gym fights, this one, that right. one. I'm like, I could do this legitimately. That would be a great thing. And so I start trying to sell the picks and that doesn't go over well. It's at that point I realized, Oh, the scammers do really win. They need to be lied to. You need to tell someone you're going to. Yeah. Win. And you got to remember, too, again, 20 years ago, those America Online chat rooms, which a, the younger audience won't remember, is whatever the topic in the room was, it was it was a bunch of degenerates. Yeah, okay. no doubt. And then, you know, the fact is that you got a bunch of people there giving picks. And while I may have been the best person in that room. There was there were alternatives for people in case someone like myself wanted to start charging for them. So I realized after a while that model's not going to work. But then now there's this worldwide web thing where people can create websites. I said, I like to write. I do like picking these games. I'll just start posting it there. And for a while, I'm posting it. And I, I don't really have a monetizing um, model there. And then I start realizing these casinos are advertising. And are they paying to be there? And so I started asking places and they said, you know, they said, I got a lot of no's, but I've been in sales. So like a no is nothing to me. And then I wised up and I told, I, I approached one place um, that was in Germany. I said, I'll post your banner on my site. 
And I put their banner on my site for free. And suddenly, Emil, all these other sports books came by, saw them advertising, and in the in for the sake of competition, they didn't want to they didn't want to see their competition on a website that might be. And matter of fact, the numbers you couldn't really get numbers back then as to how much traffic, whatever. Right. You know, so it's like, hey, why is this German sports book advertising here? Start getting the emails now. What do you charge for advertising? So and they. It just kind of took off. Yeah, it goes from there, right. Later on, we and you also got an introduction, taking this back to the original question, why don't I go off on players a lot? You got an introduction, I think, I'm going to guess, to just how nasty people can be. Oh, like yeah. When, 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 given, when given the benefit of anonymity, which oh, is what people When you combine anonymity with a person who lost a bet, oh, the things you can hear are really amazing. Um, some of them were so outlandish. I laughed. There was this one, right. There was this one uh, message board that I used to go to, and I really forget the name, but it was highly popular. And it really, as I think about it, was like the early stages of Twitter. You're anonymous. Mm-hmm. You have a screen name, and everything's just right there on that one screen. And you scroll through the headlines because your post, your whatever you posted, had to have a headline. And then there would be the little responses under it. And I realize I'm doing gestures here. Yeah, you, were, you were a little bit ahead of the curve because you probably understood very early on once you saw social media become what it's, what it's become, um, that it was going to be a cesspool. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I was always fascinated by the computer. And so now when you started connecting it, it was a good thing at first. But then you started seeing the dark side of it. And one of those was going to that website and just kind of, you know, would update, refresh, refresh, refresh. So I'd actually be watching like maybe a Monday night football game and I'm refreshing just to see the responses to what's going on because it's all betters in there. And man, you would get you would get like some super racist stuff in there. You would oh, get, yeah. you'd get the craziest stuff in there. And like I said, it was entertaining and also eye opening. And now that I think about what Twitter is, this was early Twitter. And sure. this is in the 90s. When did Twitter come around? 2011, 12? Or my, yeah. Maybe, but I, I mean, might, the, you know. the, the premise for you, you were seeing, you, you were allowing people access to you directly to make comments. And, and you get to see the stuff that would come up. And I mean, and even in that case, you had their, you know, at least you had an email address. To some extent, like they were anonymous, but they well, didn't... I was on that on that message board. I was anonymous. You had the uh, you had the opportunity to hide your email address. Sure, and you can go. Everyone went by whatever screen name they came up with. So I came up with a screen name, and I you know um, I could comment on stuff in there. I'm obviously not of the mindset of some of these people, but I know I don't ultimately have to be accountable for whatever I say in there. So. You know, it was just a whole hodgepodge of that. Now, I'm not anonymous on Twitter uh, or any of these social media platforms. No, no. But I mean, you know. But a a great deal of people are. So, you know, for someone like myself, I'm at a disadvantage on on stuff. All those forums devolve because what happens is even in a case of like yours where you were getting emails, I'm sure as it went along, even if you were playing with the people, you probably said a lot of things back that you wouldn't normally say. No, because you have the anonymity. You know, even experimented on my own website with being able to make comments under the pics. I immediately moved away from that. Now, I did have the message board. And I think you may have been in that message board. 
which was fine. If you wanted to go over there and rant or whatever, yeah. it was a cool place to meet people having that message board who are like-minded. And then you find out all the other things, as I've done with you over the years. We met on yeah. games and sports betting. And then, you know. We've- yeah, there's nothing. Listen, there's some good that comes from everything. So, you know. that, yeah. that- um, Just interesting how, you know, all that ended up working into. So I, we may have mentioned this on the show. Um, 9.5 times you go into the booth to vote. You're voting Republican 9.5 times out of 10. Sure. I'm a guy that's going to vote Democrat, which is crazy because you and I agree on a whole lot of things. What's your philosophy on that? Why do we agree or why? You're one party, I'm the other party, so to speak, but we agree on, um, if anyone's really listened to this show, a lot of things where we try and say we're going to give our opinion right then on the show and we don't talk beforehand, we agree on those things. Yeah. Well, I think some of it is just, I think some other. of it is just like anything else in life. It's cultural. It's you know, maybe one issue that really triggers you gets you to go Democrat and one issue that triggers me gets me to go Republican. It also tells you how screwed up the country is generally speaking because there's not any party out there that takes people that are relatively close and and gives them what's in their best interest. Look at it this way, right? We're a football show. Mm. People, picture a football field, right? Most people, 80% are between the 40-yard lines. Pick a side, right or left to center, but they're between the 40-yard lines. So that's 20 yards of the field. Right. If you just went out in society, started talking with people, you'd realize, oh, we agree on 80, 90% of the stuff. The people down at the five-yard line are allowed and they have time. So they drive the agenda for these parties. And then what it leaves people in that center is they have to pick a side that they don't really love completely, but they think they like it more than the other side. And then I might also add to this, though, it's those issues that maybe reside on the 10-yard line either side that I think people run with the hardest. And for a lot of people, it tends to make them forget that most of what we are about is in between those 40 yard lines. But this issue right here on the five or 10 yard line, oh, that's everything right. for some reason. And don't forget, a lot of times, Emil, it's irrelevant. Like, it is, it is irrelevant. We're not going to go to the wrong bathroom uh, when we're out in public. We're not going to do that. Generally, um, two people getting married. Whatever that is, is not going to matter to me. I'm going to get in my car and drive and go to wherever I've got to go and go on with my life. But for some reason, we tend to make those things. Well, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting discussion because I think that, uh, you know, to to your point, I I think there's a vested interest in our country in only having two political parties because they each know one of us gets to be in control every so often. Sure. And, And most politicians are really about staying in their job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in theory, there would, we'd all probably be best served if we had a third party out there that kind of incorporated guys like us. Like you and I live very similarly, uh, believe very similar things on t- as far as how you raise kids and what's important in life and all that stuff. So that's kind of what makes this so interesting is what you pointed out at the beginning. Each guy's voting a different way, but 
they're not that different. And that that kind of leads you to the question of why isn't there somebody out there that kind of takes care of those people? Right. Um, and look, we do have a versus mentality, especially since, you know, we talk about sports on here a lot. It's the red team versus the blue team. Um, it would look crazy for a green team to run out there in the middle of the red team versus. Well, sure. I mean, that, and that's part of the problem in our country is we, we've we've personalized this stuff. It, all of us to a degree, different levels, obviously. But uh, to, to some degree, I think people have made this a game. Hmm. Well, my team won this year. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, and you're not really sure what you want. <laughs> well, yeah, um, other than an election, it mean it's you know ends up being meaningless. Um, Nothing changes. I mean, you know, I hate well, to sound like maybe temporarily, and then if you know if that's what the red team voted in this year, the blue team can come in um, four years from now and undo it. Right. What are we doing, really? Um, we're fighting over nonsense, but. I have learned this obviously in running my own businesses that are, you know, social media based. Conflict brings people, it brings eyeballs, it brings attention, it drives um it drives content, it keeps people on. So I will give you an example. When I post uh when I post something on my DB page on Instagram mm -hmm. and someone makes a controversial comment. So a controversial comment would be something that shows praise for the wide receiver in, you know, a play that happens that is positive for the DB. He got an interception, but someone says something about the wide receiver. I have learned that that post will get a lot more of attention if I respond to that person and go at them for saying something nice about the wide receiver. So now they come back to see, well, what did he say? And they put their you know, their answer. Then I come back with my answer and they keep checking and checking and checking to see what I say. And then you've got people watching the fight going on be, be between these two people. And then someone else jumps in. And now we've got 100, 110, 120 comments. Right. If my first comment to that guy was, yeah, true, you're probably right. That receiver is probably really great. It dies there. And it probably ends up with 10 or 11 comments. Um, and, you know, if you're not getting the constant comments and a person revisiting to comment, you don't get the views on the video and you know views are monetized likes are monetized and that's the world that we're living in so there's no way to really seemingly generate consistent and fierce interest in anything without having it be wrapped up in some kind of controversy or you know a, well and, a and we also we, we live in a world right what's one of the biggest motivating factors for people in general humans is fear so you know, if you watch our politics in our country, each side will do this. They try to scare their side into what the other guy mm. is going to do to them, and whatever that fear is in that on that issue, right. they'll they'll drive that wedge in their fear. That's and again, you, both sides try to keep the masses. And and I know you know you and I might be sounding old, but watch it for people who don't believe us. Take a step back. Watch what what happens in the public arena. They want your average people to be at each other's throats. Conflict, you're talking about conflict, right? If the rest of us are arguing about mundane stuff that honestly isn't going to impact most of our lives, then we're not paying attention to what these guys aren't doing for all of us. Sure. Or what they are doing to us to take our money. <laughs> yeah, um, for, and for various reasons. There's distractions, and then there's also the engagement part. You know, I talked about the engagement part. You do make a good point about 
the distractions. Um, if you're heavily engaged on this issue that they've thrown out there for us to, you know, um, tear each other apart, we're not paying attention to this thing off to the side. I mean, case in point, we can watch what's going on with Fox right now um, and, and all of the depositions that they're going through. And we've come to learn how uh, many of the hosts on the show feel like some of the things that they are saying um, on air or some of the agendas that are being pushed are absolutely ridiculous. Personally, they feel like those things are ridiculous, but when the lights come on, they're pushing it 100%. And I've got to give credit to, I'll give credit to Fox on this. They make it so believable that this is 100% what they believe. You listen to Hannity and he's saying the craziest things, you 100% feel like this is at the core of this guy right here, to the point where if you're a liberal, you hate the guy. Um, but you come to find out, they think that this stuff is full. Well, well most people also don't understand this, and you know this. You've got to, and, and I don't care what news you're using to get what source, whether it's the web, you've got to first distinguish, am I listening to an opinion mm -hmm. or the news? If I'm listening to Lester, if Lester Holt is telling me BS at night, that's a problem because he's a news guy. Right. If Thank Rachel, the, the late evening news is still that. I don't know right. if it'll continue to be, but that's what it is. If Rachel Maddow is telling me BS, well, she's an opinion person. Well, same thing. Listen, Amo, you can break it down like this. Anything that comes on after 8 p.m. political is going to be opinion. Right. But I'm saying if Fox, give you an example, Brett Baer, very straight news guy, 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, tells you stuff. You, you pick out what you want to, you know, he's not telling you a thing. Once you get to Tucker Carlson, 8 o'clock, once you get to Sean Hannity, that's just complete opinion. It's BS. It's a show. You're watching infotainment. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and listen, I've mentioned Fox because they just happen to be the ones in the news right now. I'm pretty certain if you dig into CNN and MSNBC's host and you really pull them, uh, whether secretly or you know, <laughs> uh, they don't believe quite a bit of what is being pushed online there's just they've got to combat fox because that's and then the, the another part of this whole deposition that fox is going through is that they realize when they don't do that their numbers fall and now they can't get the advertising so at the end of the day it's about money they can't get the money advertising dollars because their 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 viewers check out if they don't push a certain agenda angle if they're not hardcore on that and so i continue to say it's not those guys it's not the hannity's it's not the madhouse it's it's us, the ones us. watching. We have the ultimate control. The media is the media is nothing more than a mirror. Right. It's a reflection of ourselves. So when we're watching something, if if people are saying, "Why are there Kardashians on? How do we have all these people? All they do is worry about how much money they have." Because you watch them. Right. We have the control, but we don't have the discipline to cut those things off when they get absolutely bizarre, or you know, at least when we can somehow realize what they're actually doing and the division that they're causing. And I'm not sure that that's ever going to change, but I just bring that up. So anyone listening or watching this show can just see the contrast here. Obviously we come from different backgrounds. We don't look the same, but we agree on so many things. And I think we're kind of a symbol of this, of this country. Um, and, and when you look behind the sheet, we agree, I think as folks on so much, but there's this division for no good. Well, people, don't you think to a degree a lot of people aren't aren't open-minded? They draw conclusions about people based on what they 
they think. So pick it. You could say you could do it on color. You could do it on politics. So they'll say, well, the guy down the street's a Democrat and I'm a Republican. He has to be an idiot. How many times did you talk to him? Oh, I never talked to him. No. Well, How we, do you know we he- have to do a lot with vision. I, and I'm always hesitant on that. You know, as someone who grew up in New York City, um, you're walking through the streets. You know, your vision can be can be everything. Oh, could yeah. save your life. <laughs> yeah. Trained from an early age on that. You've got to pick things out with your eyes. I don't have time. When you're 10, 11 year old, um, catching the bu- catching two buses to go to school in New York City, and a lot of times walking through the street because freaking buses are taking too long. You don't have the ability um, to be walking up to people to have a conversation with them to figure out what's up. You get abducted. You get you know you get your your pockets sure. worse. So you're using your vision, um, and I try to tell people that all the time. You you know I. I'm not going to go up and try and pet a Rottweiler or a pit bull. The reputation <laughs> precedes them. They may be the kindest dogs in the world. Those particular right. ones. So we are going to use our vision, and that's just kind of what we do. I see the guy with, with a vest and cowboy boots on. Well, he voted for Trump, and he's a redneck, and he has a belief about me. And that's just the way that it is. And that's me as an adult having those thoughts. Now, maybe me being this age, I would be more inclined to maybe go talk to a guy because I've seen enough in my life to say they're not all that way. You know, likewise, you could see a kid with his pants sagging or you see someone that's majorly urban wearing clothes and you're going to ultimately say, oh, yeah, well, he's definitely he definitely uh, votes Democrat if he votes. Um, And these are the feelings that I have about him. And. You know, that's just the way to See, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a lot of my friends tease the kid with me. I'm a weird guy like that. I tend to find people that are different than me, or at least what I perceive to be different. Interesting. Were you always that way? Amal in his early to mid 20s, were you, uh, were, you, were you maybe you were that way? Were you inclined to go talk to those people, though, even though you found them interesting? Would it be motivation enough for you to just go up and talk to them? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could tell you stories back from. I suppose then. Yeah, I suppose that's how we would have, you know, met. Yeah, no, I mean, I was. I remember I was. I went to a, you know, a Jesuit university, fairly expensive school, and there was a guy that I met playing basketball. He's older than me, from from Mississippi, and I and I, and I. He ended up working for someone I know. He was a, you know, big, strong black guy, six four, two fifty, and he he was you know, basically illiterate, right? Well, I struck up a friendship with this guy playing basketball. So I, then I used to bring him on the university campus and he used to be like, they were not going to let me in there. Just come on, we're going to go. And like, I'm not saying it was like, it was just my point was not that I'm a good guy, is that I had nothing in common with this guy, but I found him interesting. We started talking on the basketball court and I, I told you how bad I was at basketball, at least the way I see it. So, but <laughs> so I had to do something on the court. Right. But so I was always kind of like that. I find people that are different than me, at least to be interesting until they prove to me they don't like me or something and tell me, get away. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just found that interesting um, that, you know, we've been able to forge this friendship for this amount of time. Um, and if you were to just see the two of us in the street, you would say, you know, what the hell is that guy hanging out with that guy for, et cetera, et cetera. Just really based on how the world uh, works and is right now. How'd you really end up online? Just say that. Like how what brought well, you yeah. business? 
Business. I mean, I was I was working for a public company back when uh, you know AOL started becoming pervasive in the mid '90s. So I used to travel for some stuff we did. So I had a laptop with the the company, and you know they, they hooked up some of the middle management on up and onto the internet, and I was off and running. I mean, my wife will tell you, you know, well, you know me, I'm a jokester. So <laughs> those chat rooms. I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my whole family and I had some guy thinking that I was a, a, a swimsuit model from California. Good Lord. And the guy's saying stuff in there. And you remember those chat rooms? And I'm going back. Oh, yeah. After about 20 minutes, I said to him, hey, you know what? Can we break this off here? I said, I have to go. My wife's calling me for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hilarious um, that we would both. I mean, because chat rooms back then were just outstanding. You're getting an instant response from someone. You know, you don't have to wait. And you're at an age where you're incredibly immature still. Oh, sure. You know, we're <laughs> in our 20s then. So, um, yeah, just absolutely incredible <laughs> to have that stuff. All right. Well, listen, it was great to be able to do this and have some insight into and one of the hosts here on the show. And so, you know, for anyone down the road, you can always reference back to this because I know a lot of times we do our show and we say, you know, um, if you guys know that Amos a Cowboy fan or he's a USC fan. Well, this is like the ultimate reference. We're going to reverse this in the future because now this yeah, is too yeah, well, I'm going to have to maybe some have of you to, know we're going to have to break story. you down a little bit. Of course, you know, some <laughs> of you know the basic framework of my story, but you know, I'm sure there's stuff behind the scenes there that we could um, you know, get into, but it was cool to be able to do this um and be able to talk to you and and kind of find out what makes you tick and um what goes on kind of Inside of your head, inside of the head of Amo Calamino, who I call, you know, the super fan. Um, I got with a, you know, a ton of knowledge. As I always say when I open the show, you know, follow him on Facebook, talk to you literally. I think, I think if I could say one thing, I think you and I are similar to a lot of people that like sports. We do, we, we love sports, both of us. I mean, I, I think you're like me. You could probably, if you're bored, find an interest in watching almost anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what ESPN used to be for the yeah. political. I could sit there and watch yeah. bowling or, you know, some other weird sport they'd pop up. If I had one wish, I wish sports would get back to that because I think sports does more good. If, if, if it's handled correctly, I think sports does more good in the world to bring people together rather than dividing them. And I wish we could get a lot of the stuff that divides people out of sports because that that was the one place you used to be able to go that would everybody you go to a sports bar and everybody's a, everybody's friendly if you got the same jersey on. It's like you're sure. yeah, go team. And that sounds childlike, but I like that. Yeah, I think we've made the mistake when we started thinking of that we can monetize sports beyond the ticket sales by selling the stories of the individuals on there once you start doing that you start getting into things that are outside of sports because you're trying to attract people who aren't necessarily into sports and now it's about you know um what a person more about what a person does off the field which can now stretch into politics racial issues and all kinds of other things and now we have brought the, all the real world problems into sports when sports used to be our escape it's just not that anymore. We can't get away from it. And, you know, I don't think it's fair to make it like I get like if you have a big platform, you can help people. And that's great. But I think what people forget is a lot of the athletes when we were kids, they did help people. They just didn't make it. In other words, Roberto Clemente died in a plane crash taking aid to people in Nicaragua. Okay? Right. People were doing that. It's not like they weren't helping people, but I didn't need to know who Roberto Clemente voted for. 
It didn't matter to sure. you. <laughs> sure. I thought you were going the route of, well, no. you know, like, you know, what charitable stuff you're doing. No, it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me who Roberto Clemente voted for or who Muhammad Ali. You never knew the stories, though. Uh, you never really knew a ton about a player off the field or off the court unless they were one of the upper echelon eccentric personalities like a Magic Johnson. And even right. though we didn't know much, we're all shocked when he made that HIV revelation. If that was Magic Johnson playing now, we probably wouldn't have been shocked because we would have kind of known all the all you know all of his exploits. All of that would have right. been like, oh yeah, well that figures. But night that day in 1991. You were looking at the television with your mouth open. Like well, maybe I'm in the minority. I'm like one of these people that thinks, you know, some of it was better. I don't need to know everything about, about you. No, man. Just hit the damn home run, score the touchdown, whatever. And so, and I if said, you want to do good in the community, a player I'm talking go do about, that. Go, do, go do your thing. Yeah, go do that. And, you know, you're not doing it under the liberal flag, the conservative flag. It's none of that. It's just right. I feel like helping these group of people. So. Right. That's it. Well, I hope all of you folks enjoyed this um, book. It's not only a look into into Amel and Chad. It's just a look into ourselves. Um, you can probably, as a listener, see a lot of yourselves or some of your, you know, you know, many of your friends and just listening to the little back and forth that we've had here today. And so, like I said, it's early March. It's a good time in the year to be able to do something like this because it's a little bit of a slow time right after the football season. So yes, um, we're putting together that off season. A little menu for you because, you know, is there really even an off season anymore? But I'm looking forward to uh, more and more shows that we do here. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. We're taking off out of here. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Before you leave, if you enjoyed this show, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the next one. For Amo Calamina, I'm Chad Wilson. Thanks for listening to the Gridiron Stead Show. We'll see you guys next week.